Hello and welcome back to the doghouse. Usually in the doghouse, the last few weeks actually, on the last few episodes, we've been talking uh, politics and policy. Last week we were discussing the economic policies or uh, rather the policy statement and lack of actual policies uh, in the policy statement of President Rani Wickremesinghe. But this week we're taking on a different subject. We're going to uh, look at a subject that has sort of lost a lot of attention in the mainstream media and it goes back to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in Sri Lanka and the decision that the Sri Lankan government or the administration of then President Gothabe Rajapaksa took to force victims of COVID-19, the uh, deceased, to be cremated, uh, which caused a lot of grief for the families. Uh, eventually, around February of last year, 2021, the administration allocated a isolated or semi-isolated plot of land in the northeast of the country to allow for the burials of COVID-19 victims. And today, we're here to talk about what exactly happened. So we're going to look into the background why it is that the administration back in 2020 decided that COVID-19 victims must be cremated, uh, going against the advice of even the World Health Organization. We're going to look at uh, some of the decisions that were made uh, in allocating this particular plot of land in this part of the country. Uh, we're going to talk about how this affected the families of the deceased and to discuss this, we're joined by uh, our associate editor, Mohamed Fairuz, uh, who's joining us from Katankudi. And we also have Amalini Disera, a researcher and photojournalist, who's uh, currently on the bus, on the way back from Jaffna in the bus. So we ask you to excuse us for any background noise. Uh, Amalini Fairuz, welcome to the doghouse. Thank, Thank you, Nadim. Thank you for having me. Okay, so... Let's actually start off by, you know, addressing the question, you know, back in uh, uh, 2020. And this is quite a, I remember, uh, was in a newsroom at the time, actually, when these decisions were being made. I remember the first, uh, Fairuz, correct me if I'm mistaken, the first uh, victim of, uh, or the first Muslim victim of COVID-19, the first Muslim death as a result of COVID-19 was reported, I believe, from the Nigambo Hospital. And then yes. almost immediately uh, the body was taken and then cremated. The interesting thing here is that the public health guidelines that were in effect at the time did not specifically prohibit burial. But shortly after this cremation had taken place against the wishes of the family of the victim, the government then issued a revised guideline in which they said, uh, no, no, everyone who dies as a result of COVID-19 is going to be cremated. Yes, Nadim, you're correct. Exactly. The, uh, the 20 March uh, 30th, the first person uh, died in, uh, reported, uh, they did uh, report at the based hospital. So, that time, the, uh, the exact guess it was uh, allowed to burial and cremation both. 
But the next day, very next day, on 31st of March, they revised, they uh, strictly said that the body should be cremated, right? Yeah. So that's that's why I wanted to mention that fact at the get-go itself, because it sort of provides some context into the suffering that the government then proceeded to inflict upon upon the families of uh, the victims of COVID-19, uh, you know, denying them the mourning process almost by denying uh, the observance of final rights. So let's talk about why it is that Watchdog decided to dig into this subject specifically. Uh, we've got your long-form piece that's coming out this week that you, Fairuz, and Amalini have been working on together for a while. Uh, we've uh, how many uh, burials have we tracked at Maudi uh, at the cemetery there so far? There are three thousand six hundred and thirty-four uh, bodies are buried, right? Yeah. Yes. So I think uh, it's better to break down. I have the data to break down that as, a, as religious wise and gender wise. Uh, the total bodies are 300, sorry, 3,634. The Muslims are 2,992. The Buddhists, 287. Hindus, 270. Uh, Christians, 85. By gender wise, there are 2,225 gents and uh, 1,409 women. Thank you, Faris. Uh, Amalini... Yeah, including yeah. including uh, foreigners also. There are a few foreigners, but... Including a few many. foreign nationals also. Yeah. Yes. So this is this is uh, because, you know, when when this is portrayed... Amalini, I'd like to talk about, like, the context in which this happened, because uh, I know that you've done a lot of research in uh, inter-ethnic relations as well. Uh, when this was sort of happened in the media in uh, a lot of the conversation or the discourse that we saw in the media was uh, ranged from on the one hand you get uh, the headlines saying that uh, Muslims are being difficult and uh, do not want to follow these guidelines that have been set by the government to combat COVID-19 but on the other hand when you look at uh, the data that Firos just gave us it it wasn't, I mean, the, the vast majority of people who are currently buried in Otomavdi are Muslims, the victim, Muslim victims of COVID-19. But there were also other communities, uh, families with individual preferences, who also denied due to what seems to me sort of, I can't think of any other motivation other than prejudice on the part of the government. Yeah, Nadeem. Yeah. And as Nadeem mentioned at the start, I apologize for any background noise. Um, as Nadeem said, you know, we this is not happening in a vacuum. The decision that bodies of those who just died of COVID had to be cremated is not, you know, an isolated event in, a, in our kind of political landscape. And, and uh, when you kind of look at this, the amount of expert opinion coming from doctors and medical professionals saying that, you know, this cremation is not the only way. Like, you know, this supposed explanation of a groundwater contamination um, and the impact that, uh, you know, clearing these bodies would have on the soil that the government was peddling through again. Um, I think 
the word that Nadim has used often is nationalist intelligentsia. Um, it didn't hold up in the scientific sense, you know, and you look across the world, we are 190 countries and we were the one country that was forcefully cremating um, COVID-19 victims. And um, yeah, like naturally when you see the bulk of the people, the, I would argue that um, to my knowledge, the one community that is like outrightly disproportionately affected by this, um, speaking as a Christian, you know, I we have the option of burial or cremation, but if you are Muslim, you know, the the very active cremation is so, um, like the antithesis of everything, you know, it's such a, such, such a strong opposition to it within the faith itself. So, and, you know, this is the Radha Baksa administration, this is the largest Sri Lankan state in general. So, when we look back over the last few years, you know, the discrimination against the Muslim community, the kind of complacency in dealing with violence in, in the state responding to violence that the community has faced. Um, it's, as Radim said, you know, it's hard to imagine that this didn't come from a place of uh, prejudice and cruelty at the end of the day. You mentioned nationalist sort of uh, almost jingoist intelligence here. Uh, when we were doing the story, you and I, uh, when we were taking that uh, research trip throughout the country's agricultural belt, speaking to farmers around the decision to sort of ban chemical fertilizer as well. We saw uh, a lot of this when we were looking at the, the media coverage on this issue. We saw a lot of this similar sort of uh, nationalistic dog whistling that was happening. But of course, yeah. in this case, uh, Firoz and Lini, I think. When uh, yeah. when reading when reading through the article that's coming out this week, something that I realized is that this sure the the agriculture one you know with the banning of the fertilizer that set us on the crisis of like where we're going to get food from, uh, which the government is now acting to sort of mitigate. But this the when you're dealing with the finality of death and you're denying families of the grieving process, I think what really struck me with a lot of the stories that you highlighted there is. Uh, it's just tragic. Um, I'd just like to add that, um, you know, a lot of people when this was happening, they said, you know, we don't know how bad the COVID-19 pandemic could get. Um, and all to the old Muslim people asking about a burial, it was like, why don't you take one for the team, you know, for public health and safety and just allow for the burial cremation to happen. Um, why is it all? My question is, why is it always that kind of ethnic and religious uh, minorities have to take one for the team? You know, um, I mean, the question of this, what you mentioned, you know, this kind of sanctity of final rights of uh, death is something that I personally believe that the Sri Lankan state does not uphold, uh, especially in the case of religious and ethnic minorities. Um, and that's a longer conversation, but, you know, why why is it always that um, they have to take on to the team, whereas everyone else can kind of just, you know, get along with business as they wish. Yeah. And I think in this in this particular uh, instance as well, there is on the part of the media coverage surrounding this as well, because uh, what you mentioned, uh, the sort of the discourse that was happening in society, the where people were saying, "Oh, you know, this is what health authorities are saying, uh, and therefore we should follow what the health authorities are saying." Something that the media sort of failed to highlight in their coverage is that. Actually, health authorities weren't saying any of that. 
the government itself only changed the regulations surrounding the uh, uh, final rights for COVID-19 victims after someone died that needed to be buried. As Firuz mentioned earlier, the Gazette was only changed after someone was forcefully cremated. Yeah, um, I think that really, that that incident, you know, the, um, the gentleman in Igambo that really illustrates the fact that this has very little to do with public health and everything to do with the prejudice that we talked about before. Firuz, we were talking about, uh, you know, the decision eventually now. Uh, you, you gave us the numbers around how many people are buried at uh, Otamaudi, and I think uh, uh, you mentioned that as of a couple of months ago, the final burial there took place, and now you can bury even COVID-19 victims in your usual cemeteries uh, or in yes. allocated burial spaces. Now, do we know how many people were cremated against their wishes or against the wishes of their families? Uh, before February 2021, when this land was allocated? Yeah, I think that according to the uh, Muslim Council of Sri Lanka statistic, I think around uh, uh, 300 uh, Muslims' bodies are forcefully cremated, right? So actually, mm. we don't have, uh, they don't have exact statistic, but uh, because the, the health authorities, they didn't uh, provide it. But however, according to their uh, data collection throughout the island-wide uh, Muslim community, so the vice president of the Muslim Council of Sri Lanka, Hilmi Ahmed, mentioned in an uh, uh, interview to the Al Jazeera, he said there are around 300 Muslim bodies are uh, forcefully cremated. Well, forcefully cremated. In yes. that one year between March in, yeah, 30th course. and February yes. 2021. Exactly. Eventually, the government, like, let's say now, one year they've been obstinately refusing to listen to the pleas of... Uh, starting with the families of the deceased, the pleas of health experts, actual experts in soil science as well. They refused to listen to this pleas. And finally, suddenly, in February of almost seemingly suddenly, in February of 2021, the yeah. uh, government suddenly announces, look, we've identified this plot of land in this area and people yeah. who want to bury uh, their dead can go and there. What was the reasoning behind that sudden decision? Do we know? Uh, I think there's uh, international pressure. So you see that uh, the next month in March, so they allowed to start the burial uh, uh, in February last week. So mm. the next March is, you know, there's the Geneva uh, session started. So, so uh, before that, you know, the, uh, the Prime Minister of uh, Pakistan Imran Khan also visited the same week. The, then the, uh, after his visit, only uh, the, uh, after a few days of his visit, they issued this. They allowed the burial. That is also one of the reasons, according to my understanding and uh, several sources in uh, in diplomatic missions. They also said uh, Imran Khan's influence uh, in this decision. But before that, there are a lot of uh, human rights bodies. Uh, I would like to mention. Uh, these bodies because they played a huge role, right, mm. uh, to to impact on this uh, decision, right, even at Charsi, and there are several special reporters attached to the human rights bodies, sorry, uh, United Nations bodies, and Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, Amnesty International, International Crisis Group, 
uh, right and uh, there are uh, in even our local human rights commission also they 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 played a huge role to uh, changes uh, guess it and to allow the burial right so there are uh, my my uh, uh, the not only local uh, the international pressure is the main reason to to take, to repeat to take this decision to allow this burial right i think that is one and the other one is the local there are you know not only muslims are protesting right i think this is a uh, this is a joint protest by all the communities everyone join hands uh, but in the beginning of you know the, in the beginning the muslims alone they protested the other community they didn't understand why muslims are uh, not protesting yeah why protesting why they are not cooperating uh, cooperate with the health authorities like that the uh, the other communities are other communities are commented but later only they understand you know the the when when they cremated 20 year old infant right mm-hmm. uh, we know that uh, so then only the, the other peoples uh, even other communities uh, thinking why they are forcefully cremated like this babies right why how this uh, this uh, virus can spread to the body right then only they they start to research so after that the people are joined hand with the muslims and all the communities and even christian community even the buddhist and hindus all are uh, they they came to street and protest against this decision right so the international and local both pressures are uh, main reasons to uh, allow this period that is my understanding uh amali i think that uh, sort of in the run up to uh, fires as well like before we uh, saw the allocation of this uh, specific plot of land for burials we also saw uh, that a decision had been made i think about a month or so before that uh, hey let's uh, look at irnetivu on the northwest yeah. uh, uh, coast of the country uh, as a prospective location but then again sort of fueled by the kind of misinformation or should i say disinformation in this case that was being spread regarding how covid-19 spreads uh post mortem uh there were a lot of protests by locals in that area as well exactly right uh even they after that they tried to find several location in ampara district uh, irakamam and trinko and also uh, after that only they identified this uh otomosri but before that uh, the interestingly uh, nadim you know the president uh, trying to send the bodies to maldives right yeah so that is also interesting i don't know <laughs> so i think we have to uh, we can speak few words about that also yeah amelie i think it's quite it's quite uh, i don't want to say karmic cuz i don't think it's karmic it's it's a it's a farcical tragedy if if anything it's uh, <laughs> quite ironic that the uh, uh, president uh, at the time gotabe rajapaksa the uh, the man calling the shots at the time that uh, this inhumane policy of denying uh, families the right to observe you know the right to grieve uh, uh, and to observe final rites uh, very almost callously uh, said hey if you want if you're so hell bent on on burying your dead maybe you can send the bodies off to maldives and uh, eventually when he was chased out of office Uh, he found sanctuary also in the maldives there's something i uh, very ironic yeah. about that so that 
I feel like that, um, I don't know if I would use the word karma, like, you know, poetic injustice or justice or some sort. Um, but it was, I think, not just not not just the Maldives, but I think people were commenting on how, you know, he was trying to see passage or transit through several Muslim countries. And with his track record of defamations, as well as, you know, um, instigating uh, racist anti-Muslim elements, you know, being, you know, associated so closely with so many of these elements. Um, the fact that he then sought solace in Muslim countries at this time of quote-unquote need. Um, it was, uh, I feel like a lot of people relished that moment and I'm, you know, I'm not going to take that away because, uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe he had it coming for all I know. Yeah. Fires also, you know, in the meantime, we also saw in, before this, uh, uh, when when questions were being asked, like you mentioned, people were coming together and protesting. Uh, initially, a lot of the protest, of course, was uh, from the uh, Muslim community, uh, along with uh, members of sort of civil society groups, rights groups, uh, yes. and then the international community, and then later on, as uh, the sort of grief amidst the enveloping of grief you saw more people from other communities also coming forward to ask that question like hang on a second this doesn't make any sense at all uh, in the run-up to that while all this was happening the the administration of Gotabe Rajapaksa uh, also appointed a committee of uh, experts and again I'm using experts in inverted commas uh, to produce a report and then uh, this this particular uh, committee of inverted commas experts, uh, many, many members of whom we can we can say are part of that same uh, nationalist intelligentsia that had the bright idea to ban fertilizer. They tended to just say, "Oh, this uh, government has made the right call," and uh, that was at least what what their report indicated, was it not? I think it's important to just mention that there were two committees, um, one comprised of this, you know, uh, what was the word you used, jingoistic uh, intellectuals who fed this racist and prejudiced line about, you know, or ferrying to cause this groundwater contamination, therefore we have to cremate. Um, and who the, whose report was, you know, talked about in Parliament and, it, you know, the report, the findings were extensively published in the media. But you had like a second committee made out of actual scientists, actual public health professionals, actual people who've been studying COVID and its transmission since the very outbreak of the pandemic, who came out to say, you know, burial does not pose a risk that you're making it out to see, that there is no need for this forced cremation against the will of communities. So that cherry picking, of uh, quote-unquote committee input is also, um, I think, really important that we don't let that slide either. And I think, like, uh, just to bring back, I mean, I know for a lot of people it's probably hard to, like, what does it mean? What does a post-commission mean in a time when so many people were dying, right? It's just, I think it's important that we remember, like, the fact that um, each person had a very different context. If each person was very much loved by a family that, you know, believed in a faith where, you know, we vary um, and for various reasons. Uh, the, men the gentleman you mentioned in Nigambo, you know, they, they had already made arrangements at the local masjid to 
uh, bury him and then you know you turn around and the hospital is like oh finally he's been committed another lady um, her her son mentioned just having kind of just having you know seen her in hospital and given her some food and stuff and then getting a call like two hours later being like oh by the way she's uh, dead and like on the way for cremation and in an hour, hour later oh she's already been cremated and then the one that I think people are most familiar with is baby Sheikh who was 20 days old and I mean yeah it's just you know you talk to parents who've tried for years to have another baby and then this child that they view um, as like a miracle child almost and those parents were absolutely heartbroken so I know for a lot of people they might be still hard to shake from that mindset of it was a pandemic that we had never seen the likes of before and we needed to do everything we possibly can to control it. Um, to just remember that uh, real people, real families and grieving families paid the price for this decision. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Firuz, going back to the coming back now or moving forward rather to the allocation then in February 2021 of the uh, land near Majmanagar, Otamavadi, uh, in the northeast of the country, in the Batikalo district, or in the northern part of the Batikalo district. Uh, we saw, uh, even then, uh, run us through what it was that, that you, uh, having been from the area as well, or in the general area, being from Katankudi as well, what you sort of observed uh, in that time and in the time that you spent doing the research for this story, uh, what you observed in terms of uh, the government's support to maintain that facility, uh, what the reaction from the public was, uh, the local government authority, uh, just take us through that. Exactly. We have, uh, we have first, we should, uh, uh, we should appreciate the Otamavadi people, right? So in other areas, there are people protested to, to allow the burial near their nearby sites, but the Otomari people, they happily they 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 welcome this decision. They said wherever uh, as even though there are some issues, we have to, we are going to lost our lands and several issues we have to face. But we are ready to accommodate the hold the uh, bodies here because of that we can't allow, anyone can't uh, support or allow this uh, cremation, right? So first of that, that is the. Uh, that is the first response from the Otamawadi community and they are immediately when the, the officials from health uh, health authorities and the, from the military, when they pointed out this Majumanakar nearby the Otamawadi in between the Polonarwa and the Otamawadi bridge, right? So they they immediately identified, first they, they identified a garbage dump, right? This uh, belongs to but the problem is uh, that laying this uh, the health authorities rejected that land because that is not uh, suitable to, uh, to for the burial. Then they and then they identified the opposite the land that is suitable. But the problem is that uh, even though that is uh, belongs to the that is a state land, but the, the in historically the people are using that for cultivation purpose. So when they approached the owners of that lane, they also very happy to, I met the person who, or who who's the one first, uh, immediately he said, uh, without any issues, he said, uh, ready to offer his lane uh, without any expectation. 
So like that, there are uh, 10-15 people, they're given uh, totally around 21.5 acre land for this purpose. So, so far, 10, acre, uh, 10 acres used to bury these 3,600 bodies. So that is, when I was uh, visited there, there are so many issues. Uh, they meant, uh, pointed out the people because the, these people are lost their uh, agricultural land, right? So <clears throat> they are even, even though one or two people, they, they, they didn't expect any, 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 they don't have any expectation uh, to that. But however, there are, you know, there are the people are very poor. Uh, the, the one other thing is there is a, there is a, uh, uh, what is this? Is a uh, they reset there is a resettlement uh, village right the people who already affected by the war three uh, thirty uh, three decades ago so they they came from in other parts of the uh, eastern province they they came and settled in the Majmanaga. so later Fires, they, when, when when you say this is a resettled village you mean that these were communities that used to live in the area but were then evicted. Uh, either had to flee uh, from the LTTE or the uh, or had to flee the conflict, and they were dis- uh, internally displaced persons internally, who then, yes, re- who then yes. returned yes. to their their lands, and now uh, they have to again again uh, um, yeah yeah. So again, also they uh, they also going to lose their lands. So the sad thing is the government, they, they several times the organizations, they requested to provide alternative lands for this because, you know, there is a huge area there. They have enough land to provide these people. But uh, so far, until today, there are no decisions taken by it. And also other thing is uh, the government took the decision only, right? We have to understand this. The, the government issued the gazette only. And they, 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 so far, they didn't allocate a single copy with a single sense to uh to to meet this expenditure in this uh, in this this is a huge project right so the burying 3600 bodies is not a easy task right this is this this should be uh, undertaken by the government but they didn't give any 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 uh, single rupee to expend this so the whole burden the economical burden goes to the Pradeshi Sabha of this uh, automatic British Sabha right so yeah. Yes, we 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 uh, the when when we filed an RTA, we can talk in the uh, later about about that. But uh, the, the RTA also confirmed that president uh, the, they took a fund or any other funds. They didn't spend uh, uh, any. They didn't allocate any money uh, to this uh, project. So that is also main issue. We have to uh, consider this. The government didn't support. So then what happened? The Muslim community collaboratively, they, they came to support. So they spent a lot of money there. Even the, the stones, right? The, the identify, identification stones. The uh, headstones. The headstone with the numbers, right? That is also more than 1,500 stones provided by a single single uh, well-wisher from the Colombo, right? He spent a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That one one uh, one stone cost around thousand uh, five hundred rupees, right? Uh, so this kind of there are uh, uh, the food. Uh, there are yes, we have to mention there are uh, eleven volunteers uh, worked in twenty four hours to to take this burial, right? So they also paid by the well wishers, uh, the uh, the 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 persons in the they got donation from. Uh, were the well-wishers in in Colombo and other areas, and then then only they 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 give some uh, uh, 
some elements to these volunteers, right? The government of Pradesh Sabha didn't pay to them. And uh, the, the, this Pradesh Sabha used their uh, fuel, uh, their vehicles, and their human resources to to manage this until until now they are managing this. So they are, the expenditure from the Pradesh Sabha, the, when, when, when I was met this uh, Pradesh Sabha chairman, he said we already uh, lost, uh, we can't run the Pradesh Sabha because uh, during the lockdown period, we don't have enough income. In, we, know, we don't have enough revenue to run this Pradesh Sabha cost, right? So this is a burden to us. But when uh, even though they requested to the health ministry to allocate funds, they, they didn't respond positively. Even they, they requested the president uh, secretariat to come up on, they, they, they didn't get single rupees. So there is a pathetic situation of this country. I mean, when you think about the fact that, I mean, a lot of people were questioning when uh, we're talking about uh, vaccinations, where's the money for vaccinations, where's the money for that? And people are saying, why isn't the president allocating funds from... Uh, just for, for clarity's sake, for our listeners, the Itukama, I-T-U-K-A-M-A, Itukama Fund, verbatim translates roughly into duty, uh, the duty fund, uh, as in like doing your duty by your country, was uh, where the president was carrying out this fundraiser and we saw lots of uh, corporates, uh, members of the Sri Lankan diaspora from around the world, uh, private citizens in Sri Lanka, uh, various organizations contributed funds to this appeal that was launched by President Kothabe Rajapaksa uh, in order to reportedly, supposedly, uh, combat and mitigate the effects of COVID-19. And if I'm not mistaken, even even as, as recently as uh, back in... Uh, March or April, when when back in March, when they actually stopped uh, the burials only in Otomaudi and allowed people's pe- allowed victims of COVID nineteen to be buried pretty much anywhere in the country. Uh, by that time as well, very little of that money that was in the Itukama fund had been spent on anything. Uh, they'd spent like some some portion of that money on awareness, and it it just. It, I find it mind-boggling that that you know uh, uh, a local government authorities in Sri Lanka are not, uh, aside from your big ones like the Colombo Municipal Council or the Kandy Municipal Council, your your local your more remote Pradeshia Sabhas are not necessarily the most well-funded or well-resourced uh, institutions at the best of times. And now you've basically got them running a, a mass cemetery, uh, which is the state's job. Precisely. Um, and I think it's really, um, I think even Pyrus's RTI, which you'll get to, you know, there was so little, um, such a tiny percentage of the fund that was um, transparently disclosed about what it had been used for. And I mean, um, I think the moment they started collecting and the moment these questions around the fund came up, people. Um, you know, people immediately cited uh, post tsunami helping Hambantar race is going to end up in the same direction, and I feel like it, for the most part, did. And you know, Firuz was detailing the amount of things that the Pradesh Sabha spent money on, you know, like you said, out of their very limited budget. And then you have this li- extensive list of things that the families were meant to bear the cost of. So, for context, for someone listening in, 
Odomavadi is 292 kilometers from Colombo and there was a large amount of burials going in from Colombo and it is also like about 350 kilometers from Paul. Uh, again, another location where a lot of um, uh, bodies are going for burial from. So this cost of transport was something that families were bearing. You know, having to rent vehicles um, and to make this long journey across the country um, to, uh, you know, lay their loved ones to rest. And um, I think we've talked about more, more in the piece how, you know, when you actually get there, there's so little actual reflective time and morning you can spend at the gravesite because of the kind of highly securitized, militarized presence um, of the mass grave. Um, it's just, you know, it's just layer upon layer of uh, this kind of cruelty and uh, grief, like families that are already experiencing grief who have been subject to just more of it, just in volumes. Firuz, I think uh, the RTI itself that you that you had submitted requesting uh, how much of the, uh, I think if, if I'm not mistaken, Firuz, there was a total of about uh, one and a half, two billion rupees that had been uh, uh, that the president had managed to raise through the Tukama fund appeal. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Two million and twenty-four million. Yeah, of course, two million. Yeah. So million. Al- almost, uh, almost two, two point. Yeah, just over two billion rupees. Yeah. And okay. of yes. that, I'm just looking at the right, the response that you got to the right to information request that you submitted. Of that, of out of two billion, two thousand million. Uh, yeah. The actual expenditure that they reported was uh, just over 42 million for PCR tests, uh, about 67 and a half million on an advocacy program uh, that was run by the Ministry of Health, uh, 38 million for quarantine facilities, uh, just over 41 and a half million rupees for the vaccination program, and then. Uh, there's an allocation for the uh, Ministry of Defence from the Itukama Fund of uh, 7.7 million uh, rupees for purchasing ICU beds. So that's barely scratching the surface of that 2 billion uh, rupee fund. And it, you know, you, you're talking about uh, internally displaced persons who, after decades of conflict, have finally returned to uh, their communities, and then the government, without which should be sort of looking after the interest of its citizens, goes on to then ask these former IDPs themselves to sacrifice their lands uh, to. Uh, I have no words. Exactly, yes. When I, when I was visited there, actually I cried because the, the people, even they don't have, uh, they don't, they don't have uh, proper roads, right? Infrastructure development, they don't have proper school, uh, proper uh, infrastructure, even they don't, they don't have uh, yeah, the, the drinking water, right? The people they don't have, they are, they, they are facing several issues. So first, this uh, the government must uh, take care of that uh, villages who are uh, even the lot of people are protested. Uh, they are not, they are they need to give lands, but they they offered uh, voluntarily to give this land, right? So government must do better than this. <laughs> they they didn't do nothing. Exactly, they 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 spend the money only 
uh, according to our RTA replay, they, they spent only just 200 million rupees, right? Less than, uh, less, than less than 10%. Yeah, less than 10% of yes, uh, a yes. 2 billion rupee fund. Yes, they raised in the name of uh, COVID expenses, right? So, mm. but they didn't, they didn't. I think the fund is still there, right? Uh, I'm guessing we don't know for certain. Yeah, yes. I'm, I'm, yes. I assume it's still there. Yeah. Avalini, you know, it's uh, it really is like when you when you uh, consider the fact that uh, you know the the North and East with IDPs, whether they're uh, uh, Tamil IDPs from the latter stages of the war, or well, actually throughout the entire duration of the war, or the Muslim IDPs from those areas. Uh, Sinhalese people who were also displaced uh, during the time. When you consider the fact that these people, after that decades of conflict, they're finally coming home, uh, and they come home, and then they find that they have to volunteer uh, their privately owned lands, uh, so that uh, the government. I mean, we talked about the toll of. Uh, the toll that this, that the forced, the mandatory cremations, the forced cremations policy had on the families of the deceased. But then the government basically, even after uh, sort of, I won't say relaxing, but after uh, going, caving into the pressure and taking the decision to bury uh, victims of COVID-19, it seems to me that the government then, the government of President Gotabe Rajapaksa kind of doubled down and uh, so okay, uh, while we now have to cave into the international pressure to uh, actually allow people a decent send-off, uh, a dignified send-off, uh, let's see what parting shots we can uh, take when, while we're backing down from this uh, frankly racist decision. Yeah, I think you're right. And like, you know, like you mentioned yourself, so many people have lived through kind of three decades of conflict. You are returning, you know, hopefully that you can go home. Hopefully that, you know, the ones who actually, at least the physical combat has ceased, that you can return to some sense of, uh, you know, your, to, your, to your gamma, to your hood, and, you know, start life again. But, um, in the case of, you know, say, Tamil people in the north, you're returning home to military occupation, but you're, but you're, but you're even returning home is the question. And, you know, like Pairo said, this this, um, this community in Otomavadi has given up, like, willingly so much, just, you know, this, it should not, it's absolutely heartbreaking, like, that should not have happened, you know, average citizen among the most vulnerable and poverty-stricken and among those facing the most amount of hardship should not have to shoulder the burden and backstop the failures of the government. Um, and this has been apparent across COVID, across the, like even the economic crisis. Like I, you know, I feel like Sri Lankans people come through for each other in immense ways and the government starts failing everybody. And that's, you know, we talk about resilience, we talk about kindness and uh, things like that. And sure, that's important, but I, I guess like I'm always like when this is a job for the state to take care of its own people, why do people have to pack and sacrifice? Um, you know, just for the most basic sense of humanity and decency to be fulfilled for their kind of fellow um, countrymen. Yeah. 
I think, uh, uh, Lini, you, you kind of like just basically wrapped it up there. What the government basically denied was a basic sense of humanity and, and dignity in death to uh, all these people, very real people, these, uh, the 300 plus people who uh, were mandatorily cremated before the barriers were allowed and also for the 3,000 uh, plus people who are now buried at Otomaudi and also for the residents of of Majmanagar and and that and those surroundings who had to, some of them being former IDPs, internally displaced persons, who now have to sacrifice their lands for a cemetery. Uh, I mean, what the government did deny all of these people was a basic sense of humanity and dignity. And on that, uh, you know, on uh, on the doghouse on this podcast, we we frequently jokingly say that. Uh, we are one of the most depressing podcasts uh, out there, but uh, usually we're dealing with problems faced by the living. Uh, Amalini Fairuz, I must say that this is probably one of the more depressing episodes of of the Doghouse uh, that I have hosted uh, in a now 16 plus episode long run, and it is it really makes you question what the purpose of the government of Sri Lanka uh, is at the end of the day when you look at uh, even things that are happening now because if you look at a lot of the narrative even in the political arena right now uh, I'm sure the two of you will agree with me people saying that oh look Gotthard got a lot of stuff wrong with the economy and with the fertilizer but uh, he did a good job of handling the pandemic. And I think that uh, the story that uh, the two of you, Firuz and Amalini, have produced, that's uh, our latest in our long-form series, shows that, um, you know what, even when it came to handling the pandemic, uh, it, was, it, it was far from uh, a good job. It's really, you know, what you said, you know, you have no respite. I mean, again, this is something that people joke about, you know, you can't live in this country in peace, you can't die in this country in peace either. It's absolutely heartbreaking and I, you know, yeah, I, I don't have any words on that topic. Anyway, thank you. Uh, thank you, Amalini, and also thank you very much, Firuz, for uh, all the hard work that you've put into uh, this this piece, which is which will be coming out in in two parts. Uh, the first part's coming out this week. The second, the week after, uh, you'll find it on our uh, on our website, longform.watchdog.team. That's where you find all of our long form investigations. Keep an eye out on our socials. We'll notify you as soon as those uh, those posts are up. Uh, you'll find us at Team Watchdog on. Facebook, Twitter, and also, of course, on Instagram. Thank you very much again, Amalini and Firuz, for uh, being in the doghouse with me. I know that uh, Amalini is currently on a bus somewhere en route from Jaffna to Colombo. Firuz is also joining us all the way from Katankudi. So thank you very much, the both of you, for taking the time. And also thank you to our listeners. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. (coughs) 